Welcome to Reinventing Solidarity, a podcast of the journal New Labor Forum and the School of Labor and Urban Studies at the City University of New York. My name is Paula Finn, podcast host and editor of New Labor Forum. Reinventing Solidarity features scholars, activists, and artists on the front lines of movements for social and economic justice. We ask the essential and often provocative questions about race, class, gender, and the role of organized labor and social justice organizations in the work of creating a radically different world, a world with solidarity, equality, and sustainability at its heart. In this episode, Deepak Bhargava, a distinguished lecturer at the School of Labor and Urban Studies, speaks with Heather McGee about her recent book, The Sum of Us, What Racism Costs Everyone and How We Can Prosper Together. Progressive commentators in the U.S. have long debated the primacy of race versus class in our political and economic life and therefore its rightful role in organizing strategy. McGee sees this as a false debate. The stories she tells illustrate the concrete ways in which racism and our deep economic divide go hand in hand. She argues that at every turn, racism undermines class solidarity and makes it possible in the richest country on earth for so many people to lack a living wage, a pension, access to quality health care, childcare, and a sustainable environment. I suspect that the listeners of Reinventing Solidarity will find McGee's analysis and her prescriptions to be absolutely essential listening. So I'm, I'm thrilled to introduce Heather McGee for this conversation about her book, which has been such an important contribution and sensation to some of us. So just a little bit about Heather. She designs and promotes solutions to inequality in America. Over her career in public policy, Heather has crafted legislation, testified before Congress, and helped shape presidential campaign platforms. Her book, which has a new afterword in the paperback edition, The Sum of Us, What Racism Costs Everyone and How We Can Prosper Together, spent 10 weeks on the New York Times bestseller and was long listed for the National Book Award and the Carnegie Medal for Excellence in Nonfiction. The New York Times called it, and I think this is a great description of its importance, the book that should change how progressives talk about race. For nearly two decades, Heather helped build the nonpartisan think and do tank Demos, serving for four years as president. And she moved big ideas in her time there, like debt-free college and voting rights. You've seen her in major media outlets like Meet the Press and Morning Joe, where she's consistently a brilliant and sane voice for progressive solutions. Welcome, Heather. We're so excited to have you. Thank you so much, Deepak. This is really a pleasure. I am thrilled to have this conversation with you. You and I have talked informally about the book, but never formally. So let's do it. Yeah, let's get into it. So let's start out with the basics. What is the zero-sum paradigm? How has it gained such a foothold in American consciousness, particularly among white people? And was it manufactured? And if so, how? 
So I came to this understanding of a zero sum. I sort of stumbled upon it very early on in a journey that I launched, quit my job in 2017 and set off across the country. I went from California to Mississippi to Maine and back again multiple times, trying to find out a more convincing answer than I had learned in the world of policy advocacy to the question that I'm sure many of us have asked at some point, which is simply, why does it seem like we can't have nice things? And by nice things, I don't mean like drive-through espresso and self-driving cars. I mean nice things like universal childcare and guaranteed affordable healthcare and paid family leave and a well-funded public school in every neighborhood and great infrastructure in a country that used to have infrastructure that was the envy of the world. I mean, a fair economy where there's no such thing as poverty work, right? All of that seems totally doable, right? Other countries have figured it out with a lot less of our wealth. And it just has seemed for all of my career, nearly 20 years working to combat inequality, we are not consistently getting closer to really having nice things for for all of our people. And so I was frustrated. I'm I'm sure you... (laughs) You've had that moment. I I know that you've had that moment of trying so hard to change things and sometimes having wins, but so often not. And so I quit what really in many ways was my dream job and set off on this journey. And one of the first people that I actually went to visit and sit with was it was two professors, Professor Summers and Norton, who had written this study entitled Whites Increasingly See Racism as a Zero-Sum Game That They Are Losing. And, you know, this was a pretty simple public opinion survey, but it it really got something that it put a name to something that I felt like had actually been contributing to the headwinds of, of economic progress. This idea that we're sort of not all on the same team, the idea that there's sort of a fixed pie of well-being. And if my group gets a bigger slice, then your group must get a smaller slice. As President Biden says it so colloquially, you know, a dollar more in my pocket must mean a dollar less in yours. That's the zero sum. And this is, again, comes back to sort of why I felt I needed to take this journey, because the field that I was in in economics told me that wasn't the case, right? That, it, that you know, the economy is more like a game where it's not a zero sum, where in fact you want all of your players on the field scoring points for your team, right? If you have more and more human capital that grows the economy, the sense that you don't want anyone in economics to to be on the sidelines due to debt, discrimination, disadvantage. But the zero sum story lies to people. It tells people we're not all on the same team. And that that belief in, in competition, it's a, it's a racialized story about competition. It's a story that says that there's a zero-sum racial hierarchy, and, and I have my hand clenched around a certain rung on that ladder, and if somebody's coming up from my rung, I got to kick them down. That story is one that runs counter to the economic evidence, but it is one that more explains the resistance that we see in our politics towards the kinds of quality of life investments that would make all of us really better off. And and you asked me, Deepak, whether this story is manufactured. I was very clear in my research to sort of not take anything for granted, right? To really try to trouble and question received wisdoms. And I asked myself, you know, because Everything that we believe comes from a story that we've been told. Who's telling, especially white folks, right? Because this, this, this view of the zero-sum 
game is a belief that is held much more frequently by, by white folks than it is among people of color. Generally speaking, we don't think that our progress has to come at white folks' expense, but this fear that the progress for people of color has to come at white folks' expense is, is a predominant worldview among white Americans. So I asked who's telling this story to mostly white folks, why are they buying it? If someone's selling the story, how are they profiting from that sale? And that's where I really went back in the history and really saw that the zero-sum story was first created as a justification for an economic model. I truly believe that the evidence bears out that it's greed is the motive and racism is the means, that the zero-sum story was created as a racial bargain to sell to, in our earliest days of this society, when we had a very exploitative economic model of stolen land, stolen people, and stolen labor. But there was a mass of European settlers who didn't know their place and who, for a time in colonial Virginia, were beginning to see that they had a lot more in common with, as mostly indentured servants who were landless, a lot more in common with enslaved African and indigenous people than they did with the white ruling class, sort of colonial plantation elite. And so they took up arms. And the story of the Bacon's Rebellion is, is, is the most dramatic story of cross-racial solidarity in the colonial period. And it, they burned the capital of Jamestown to the ground. And in response to that threat of the many against the elite few, that's when the colonial plantation elite created what we know as the racial hierarchy, the idea that Black people would always be property, the idea that there was such a thing as Black and white people, and that they would have different social and economic rights. And so it was a racial bargain. It was saying to people who would soon be experienced in the world as white, side with your color instead of your class. And that's where the zero sum came from. And that's how it's been animated and reanimated for generation after generation, often by that same self-interested elite ever since. Thanks for that answer. One of the many things I appreciate about the book is the centrality of a focus on labor. I want to dig in a little bit there, especially since we're at the School of Labor and Urban Studies and it's part of our DNA. So one chapter of your book really talks about the erosion of power in unions after the civil rights movement. Mm -hmm. You talk about a visit to an auto plant in Mississippi where you were told by a white worker, if blacks, if the blacks are for it, I'm against it. Mm -hmm. So what do you think are the conditions that create this type of conflict? And did the black factory workers have the same zero sum attitude about power share? So I, um, you know, so I grew up in Chicago in the industrial Midwest and all around me was evidence of families and neighborhoods even that had their security, their freedom, their dignity secured by being in a union or having someone in the family in a union. And these were industrial unions. These were factory unions. These were auto unions, right? The UAW was synonymous with a good life when I was growing up. Driving a foreign car was low treason. So when I first read about the fight to unionize a Nissan auto factory in Canton, Mississippi, right outside of Jackson, and read that the, the you know, nearly 10-year campaign to win a union vote failed, and that the majority of workers who were eligible to vote at the plant voted against it, to me, it was like a dog bites man story. You know, it just didn't make sense. Why would, why would a group of workers say no 
to higher wages, more job security, and more protections, better retirement, right? Particularly at this moment in time when so few workers get that kind of security. Why would you say, eh, I'm good? And so I went down to Mississippi to talk to workers, both for and against the union, white and black, to figure out what was going on there. And what I learned was that there was a real invisible ladder at the plant that was a racial one that the white workers who came into the plant were much more likely to get quickly put into the less physical and less demanding, the easier jobs, that Black workers often got stuck, you know, on the actual assembly line. One older worker told me that the jobs that the white folks got more easily was, were such cush jobs, they called them cush jobs. And he said, you can tell how cush the job is because somebody can go from the plant to the happy hour straight away, doesn't have to go home and shower, right? So this this system of the racial privilege was one that in my conversations, it became clear that the management both explicitly and implicitly communicated would be troubled by a union and its rules that, as I said, would put everyone on an equal playing field. And so there was a real threat of a loss of this unnamed but undeniable privilege. And so the majority of white workers were opposed to the union. There's so much history here, obviously, right? Union is a dog whistle in the South, right? Like literally, it's like maybe, maybe these folks should organize with a different name in the South. You know, I mean, it's really, it's really has that same feel to a lot of the sort of white Southern culture as is this is this Northern thing that takes its values of equality and is are trying to impose them on our system, which is doing just fine. Right? So after I first sort of learned of this, I was pretty depressed. I said, you know, maybe the white workers were right that the sort of good old boy system, the buddy buddy system that, that the workers called it, quote, where, where who you hunt with matters more than the job you do on the every day is actually in their interest, right? And and as something that was create rules about seniority and ways to advance and all that would be bad. But then I had to remember, and of course the workers who were for the union reminded me that nobody on the plant, whether Cush or Lime job, had guaranteed healthcare, great pension, wages that were competitive with the unionized shops, right? So everybody was sort of fighting for crumbs, but there was a way, a way not taken that could have lifted up the floor for for everyone. And so that tension so beautifully expressed in W.B. Du Bois' Black Reconstruction in America, where he invented the the just quintessentially American and beautiful idea of, of the wages of whiteness, the sort of psychological wage that the boss will pay in lieu of material wages, and that feeling like you're just a bit more than somebody else, that relative advantage is even more nourishing than is $5 more an hour, than is a sense of job security, right? And so that tension very much, as I described from from our earliest history of what would become the United States is still alive, you know, today in labor organizing. Now, you asked, did the Black workers feel that way? You know, I, I heard some of the most beautiful stories from some of the Black pro-union workers about how what they had to do in order to sort of put aside 
all of the resentment, all of the tension, all of the, you know, very clear racism to try to organize white workers into the union and say, this is in your interest and I will stand up for you, right? I will have solidarity with my white brother and sister on the line who in, in all other contexts doesn't want to see me rise, right? That's the tension. And it's still today, right? An unorganized plan. Still today, the South has the lowest union density of any place in the country. And still today, in so many ways, all of that collective action, whether it's through labor unions or through a strong and responsive government, is weakest in the places where the plantation system, which was so about divide and conquer, so about undermining collective action, was, was, was baked into the, the original structure. Such a powerful story. And the, the Bacon's Rebellion obviously was also a workers' uprising. That's one way of understanding what was happening. And that, that theme continues. And people do sometimes make different choices. White workers sometimes do make different choices. So I'd love for you to talk a little bit about the role you see given the zero-sum politics for the labor movement today in building a new kind of politics and examples you offer some in the book, but whatever comes to mind, examples mm-hmm. that inspire you of the role that the labor movement can play in, in breaking this chain. There are two ways that people can come together, ordinary people can come together and build collective power that's strong enough to take on concentrated wealth and, and corporate power in this country. Think of them as sort of these two fists where we, you know, are uniting people together. One is labor unions. And it has always been the case. And the other is government. And labor unions, you know, W.B. Du Bois said there was, he saw no institution that was so effective at, at minimizing race prejudice among the masses as, as the labor union, right? And when organizing the, the sort of more radical thread of organizing from the meat packers to so many of the CIO unions has really confirmed had a, a, a radical egalitarian politics from the, I'd say from the Knights of Labor, the Meatpackers, right, all of these examples, it has created tremendous social gains of cross-racial solidarity through to the UAW's role in the civil rights movement. One of the sort of political assumptions of the Democratic Party is that, you know, white men who are in labor unions are more progressive than white men who are not, right? That, 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 position in the hierarchy that is offered to white men is less compelling when there's another story, another worldview, another ideology, another sense of where you get your value and your worth and who's on your side and who you're fighting against. And it's not a racialized one, but it's a class one. So that's the promise. I do see that as the working class has become more diverse, more full of racialized immigrants, more full of women, the power, the normative power, the representational power, and then yes, of course, the structural power that and political power that flowed of labor unions has, has weakened as the, the people in, in power, as the power structure has seen itself less and less in organized labor and in the working class more broadly. The permission structure to have a bare knuckled anti-union campaign has grown stronger. That said, one of the most exciting recurring stories that I find, that I found in the research for the Some of Us that I'm finding now as I'm back out on the road, reporting on stories that will come out as a podcast in June, all about cross-racial solidarity. It is when people who have so much on the line and at stake, 
recognize that it's only through collective action that they have the power to change the rules that govern their lives. And that that collective action in a multiracial America and in particular multiracial working class is going to mean cross-racial collective action. That, and, I, and I'm not just talking about white people here who, who are having that sort of consciousness shift, but people of all backgrounds, that's, I mean, that, that is what gives me hope, right? That is, that is our salvation in America if we can finally jettison this zero-sum racial hierarchy as a belief system, as a story, and see ourselves in one another and learn to fight for one another instead of against one another. And there, in the book, I tell the story of this amazing campaign, a Fight for 15 campaign in Kansas City called Stand Up KC, where they really, their story of the campaign was really about fighting against racism in order to win higher wages. And that was just a beautiful campaign. Another story that I'm telling in the podcast, uh, we just were in Memphis telling the story of a multiracial campaign there to stop big oil pipeline from threatening you know, the land in a Black community in Southwest Memphis, but the water for the entire city. And that campaign was sort of explicitly about cross-racial solidarity and, and, and eliminating racism as the sort of path of least resistance for pollution. Without racism, you don't have the sacrifice zones through which the pollution is run. And if the whole community stands up for that neighborhood, then the whole community is, is safer. You know, it's such a compelling case that racism is bad for everybody, mm-hmm. materially. But you also make the case in the book that racism is really the center of the spiritual and moral crisis facing our country. Yeah. And I wonder if you can kind of speak to that, that dimension. Why do you believe that to be the case? You know, I, I'm, that, this is not, that's not my, like, that's not my job, right? <laughs> the spiritual stuff. I'm not a faith leader. It's not what I do. But as I was having conversations with, you know, over over 100 people of all walks of life about these issues, about the cost of racism to everyone, about the hidden cost of racism in our politics and our policymaking, it often turned to that place, to the sense that there was just something fundamentally spiritually wrong with the system. That ultimately in an economy, the rules of the economy represent our our moral intuition about what's right and what's fair. And with that moral compass broken, as it has been by our system of, of white supremacy, is it any wonder that our economy would be adrift? So that relationship between the moral intuition, the moral permission, the belief in a hierarchy of human value, and the permission to have unfettered inequality was very close, right? You, 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 the, the sense that there are some people whose labor is worth nothing, the stories that were built up in order to justify that free labor, the dehumanization of people who toiled, the excuses, the stereotypes, all of that, that just made it possible, got into our collective story. And now excuses all kinds of inhumanity that is not the same as chattel slavery, but is definitely growing in the fields that were were sown by chattel slavery, whether it's how we treat immigrant workers, our tolerance for a vast underclass of persecuted and often trafficked and, and, and 
wage thefted is that what's the word for that um definitely not wage thefted but you know people whose whose wages are stolen routinely or it's just a system where someone can be making 725 an hour while someone else is making a thousand times that right Timos research showed that fast food one of our most vital parts of our economy today an average worker would have to work a thousand years to make what the ceo makes in a year right so that that's why it is fundamentally about what we believe about each other's worth right how firmly we believe in the spark of divinity or the spark of humanity whatever we hold sacred in in our fellow human being or or whether we worship at the altar of something else and that's fundamentally that's what we've got to get right I really appreciate that. It does feel like we are in the midst of a very profound spiritual crisis and has material manifestations and political mm-hmm. manifestations. And I do want to talk about that because we've had a little exchange about politics. I want to talk about zero sum as it applies to politics. So you remind us in the book that a majority of white Americans have not voted for a democratic presidential candidate since the party became the party of civil rights. When Lyndon Johnson signed the Civil Rights and the Voting Rights Act, essentially. Mm-hmm. But what's been the impact of that reality of that uh, and of that in terms of inequality in our country, of that dynamic? Well, this is really where the sort of central metaphor of the book, the story of, of the drained public pool comes in, where and it's an important reminder, I think, for a lot of people in my generation who've grown up entirely in the inequality era. They don't know anything else. They don't no, we don't know on a sort of firsthand basis what it was like when public college was free, when the government massively subsidized home ownership for working class people, when there was a, a, a major program of public housing and of no down payment housing, and when the labor laws were strong and well enforced, right? The New Deal ethos of public goods. The, the real sense that the government had a right and responsibility to ensure a decent standard of living for people it was born out of the excesses of the first Gilded Age that we've now surpassed in terms of inequality. It was born out of the crucible of the Great Depression. And in the book, I talk about a symbol of this being the very lavishly funded resort style public swimming pools that used to be in the country and over 2000 of them was sort of a new deal public good alongside a building boom and schools and roads and bridges and parks and libraries and all of that. And, and often the public pools were like the rest of the new deal program. They had a racial asterisk. They were segregated. They were exclusively for white people, whether explicitly like in the housing market where the country government, you know, drew maps of the whole nation and uh, and all the cities where they were investing in and and graded the the communities based on you know how credit worthy they were and all the Negro areas were graded as the lowest grade and do not lend. This is the redlining process, or it was things like social security, which virtually eliminated poverty and old age, but carved out and excluded the two job categories where most Black workers were in a compromise with the South or the GI Bill, which was race neutral on its face, but the benefits were filtered through a segregated housing and education sectors. And, and so too often were the public swimming pools for whites only, either explicitly with a sign on the fence or just by custom enforced by intimidation and violence. 
And when the civil rights movement in the 1950s and 60s empowered Black Americans to begin to win at the court, saying, hey, those are our tax dollars that have been funding those public goods all along, just as much, right? And in the case of the swimming pools, we want our kids to swim too. Many towns and cities, not just in the so-called Jim Crow South, drained their public pools rather than integrated them. And they literally drained out the water, backed up truckloads of dirt, seeded it over with grass. It was such a common practice that it became a, a lawsuit in front of the Supreme Court. 1971, the court said, eh, I see no problem here. This is the story of the destruction of public goods because of a racist fear of a public that was not good. And to me, the drained pool became a metaphor for this sudden and pretty, to this day, kind of permanent <laughs> shift in the mindset of the majority of white Americans about collective action, about government, about the public. Once the government went from being the enforcer of the racial hierarchy to the upender of the racial hierarchy. And that showed up in our politics. It showed up in our electoral politics once, you know, the party of the New Deal also became the party of civil rights. It, you know, Johnson, as he was signing the Voting Rights Act, said, said to Bill Moyers, you know, I'm, I've given away the South for a generation. He didn't realize he'd given away the majority of white Americans, period, for more than a generation. Where this politics of racial resentment, the idea of government as not being on their side, but being on the side of the, the, the competitors in the zero sum really set in and was exploited by a re reactionary right wing. And by a corporate right wing that saw that if you could turn the majority of the country away from government and collective action, away from those two fists, because of a fear about who else would be in that with them, then you could loosen the reins on corporate power and expand its reach. And that's what we've seen, right? So in rejecting the public goods paradigm, white Americans sort of paved the way for the inequality era. And you see still today a real correlation in the data between a white survey respondents' anti-Black attitudes and their antipathy towards government. If you have high levels of racial resentment, you are 60 percentage points more likely to think that there should be less government spending, just period, on whatever. And of course, what ultimately, who ultimately benefits from the drained pool? It's the very rich who want to see a small government unable to tax, unable to regulate. As the attacks on critical race theory have mm -hmm. unfolded, and especially after the Virginia gubernatorial election, I really found myself frustrated by why more leaders in the Democratic Party hadn't read your book, <laughs> followed its advice, and instead were kind of defaulting to these broken paradigms of avoid the topic, mm -hmm. don't talk about race, et cetera. And so I'm curious why you think that some parts, and you actually make the point you're afterwards, that it's not all parts of the party have been slow to embrace the, this kind of winning narrative around mm -hmm. race and class. Thank you for suggesting that I, I have, that my book has the answer to the, <laughs> to the major problem of, of race and democratic politics. So just to be clear, what I suggest, what um, a, a huge project that I helped to initiate as I was formulating the idea that would become the sum of us called the race class narrative, which was a big political messaging research project in which if people want to find out more about that, they can go to wemakethefuture.us, which is the grassroots infrastructure hub for, for that 
that set of messages and narratives, what that kind of insight, that whole set of insights about the way racism is used strategically in order to undermine collective action and how people whose goals require collective action, whether it's on healthcare, public education, or higher taxes or whatever, need to not ignore race and need to have a really race forward populism that redraws the, you know, the us and them and says that the us is a multiracial us and the them is a, is a, is a corporate elite that uses racism to try to divide us, but we won't let them divide us, right? That sort of hopes to inoculate people in the working and middle class against appeals to, you know, to strategic racism and to the racial bargain. And I want to just be clear that 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 appeal that says that that appeal, that strategically racist appeal is not just targeted at white people. White people, you know, are sort of intergenerational basis more conditioned to be receptive to it. But I think it's become more sophisticated in recent years to where the target is immigrants of color, the targets is sometimes black men, it's anybody who just sort of wants to see themselves on a higher rung of the ladder. And what the right is saying is like, you know, the, is, is trying to create a, a scapegoat in them that anybody can feel better than. And so that's, that's right, that's the appeal. But one of the big lessons is don't ignore race. If you're a politician who's trying to navigate these waters, you can't avoid race. You shouldn't only talk about race in actually an us versus them framework where you are really just emphasizing sort of ironically the benefits of racism to white people, where you are saying to white and multiracial audiences that there's white privilege and that we have to fight for racial justice for black people and just sort of leave out anybody who is not in the audience that you're sort of frankly pandering to usually because it's usually white Democrats who are struggling with this frame, right? It's, you know, it is really white Democrats who often have the hardest time with this because I think, to answer your question of the why, I think there is two things. One, remember, the majority of white Americans are not Democrats, right? So when we're talking about white Democrats, which is the vast majority of the power structure of the Democratic Party is white, I mean, we have two Black people in the Senate, you know, like, I mean, just, you know, the list goes on and on, right? So that's a minority of white people. And increasingly, particularly, obviously, since the civil rights movement, but increasingly accelerating since the Obama era, to be a white Democrat means you came to the party because you don't mind hanging out with Black people and people of color, right? Like, your racial views are what define you as a Democrat. And yet your instinct is one where you're pretty comfortable with guilt. You're pretty comfortable with getting a sense of moral superiority because of your sympathy and solidarity with people of color, which is not the majority of white people. So I think there is a a disconnect actually, oftentimes like on just like a basic, like at the dinner table level between our white brothers and sisters who are in democratic leadership and their white brothers and sisters and cousins who are the base that they are often trying to retain some hold on. That's just like psychological. You were asking about like sort of the therapy, but I also think they haven't seen it win. They have seen silence on race, at least sort of not get them in trouble. They've seen playing into resentment politics as the Clinton, you know, playbook was when they've seen silence on race as was the Obama program when 
twice. Although of course, a black man at the head of a black family can never be silent on race. And so that's the piece that is missing. <laughs> that's the piece where they think it's the same as that. And they haven't seen it. They haven't seen it win. And I also think that the narrative that I'm suggesting and that we've seen win at the local level is a populist one. It is a multiracial populist one. And that's the part that is always hard for politicians in the ruling class to really do full-throatedly. It's not just saying don't hurt brown and black people. It's saying hurting brown and black people empowered the corporate elite. And that last part is what is often very difficult. Yeah, that's, that's some, something I agree with that completely. And some of the conclusion I came to was the, the inability to name a villain in the story. Mm-hmm. That's right. For all kinds of reasons about power in society and corporate contributions and a sort of complicity of much of the party in the neoliberal agenda that has caused this inequality creates the difficulty in implementing the strategy that you, you talked about. So I want to go to a couple audience questions. They're really great questions. The first one continues on this theme. So is racial equality possible under capitalism? And then second question that relates to it, when you say racism has a cost to everyone, do you mean to include billionaires and corporate leaders mm-hmm. who seem are beneficiaries rather than victims of racism and the divide and rule stretch? So let me take the second one first because it's faster. <laughs> the answer is faster. No, I do not mean millionaires and billionaires. I mean almost everyone, but you know, it was already a long subtitle. (laughs) The cost of racism to almost everyone, excluding millionaires and billionaires and those who aspire to be them and how we can prosper together. No, right? I mean, the, the sort of recurring villains in my book are greedy corporations and millionaires and billionaires and and the politicians they pay for, right? So that it's a it is a populist book. I think that capitalism, as we invented it in order to serve a racial chattel slavery system as we have developed it under a system of racial apartheid for most of our history is incompatible with racial equality. I think there are other forms of societies with businesses right, that can have a lot more racial equality than we have seen, right? There are social democracies that have private ownership of business, that have what we think of as capitalism, which, you know, I'm going to be like very layman's terms here. Like we think of capitalism as shopping, as being able to spend money kind of freely, as being able to start a business, right? That's what we think of as the market, most people, less than half of the country actually owns stock. And so the idea of remote capital ownership is like still not the capitalism that people have an image of in in their day-to-day lives. And I think those of us in the academy and in politics need to be sensitive to that, that when we talk about doing away with capitalism, we're trying to get a working class audience to agree, we need to be clear about what we're thinking, particularly particularly when a lot of that working class comes from countries where the socialist experiment for lots of reasons about imperialism and all of that has meant 
total privation and misery, right? So I just want to be like real about the, you know, when you communicate, you're trying to both say what you're saying and have people hear it. And outside of the academy and like really left circles, I think our point of reference when we talk about capitalism and make that critique just needs to be defined much more clearly. How can a positive story about the potential of racial solidarity to unlock the solidarity dividends start breaking through in our media, current media environment, which is so imbued with this zero-sum thinking, polarization, othering? We know that the folks who pay attention are usually more in an activist camp and the majority of folks are disengaged. What are your thoughts about breaking through and kind of how the solidarity dividend really fully lands in the in society as a as an idea, a mobilizing tool, a, a concept? When I was writing the Some of Us, I was writing from a sense of frustration with Democratic Party leadership being resistant to breaking out of the neoliberal economic frame, being afraid of deficits, being unwilling to fight for investments in public goods, being willing to even make the argument. Finished writing in November 2020. And then the Biden administration came in with an agenda with what would, what would become rolled into the Build Back Better agenda with the American Rescue Plan, the Families Plan, Jobs Plan. I kind of read like the list of nice things that I opened the book saying, isn't it frustrating that we don't have it, right? Paid family leave, child care. Anyway, we don't ever, you know what I'm talking about, right? Which was a paradigm shift in terms of being willing to fight for and lay out a plan for a refilling of the pool of public goods. And the fact that those plans had supermajority support, have supermajority support, each one of them, and, you know, for a, a long time, the, the whole package meant to me that there has been a move, a movement, there's been some movement that the experience of late stage capitalism, the experience of the movements that have been built around from Occupy the fight for 15 to the teacher strikes, the movement for black lives and all of that, all of that sense of sort of a new field of heroes demanding change and fairness and justice has moved the needle on what I would call the solidarity dividend about what could be won, what the gains could be through cross-racial solidarity, right? And it was a multiracial coalition that waded through high water in November to vote and then miraculously again in Georgia on January 5th in the special election, right? So all of that is hopeful news. What is interesting to me now in this moment, and I write about that in the afterward, because right, because I stopped, you know, the book was finished before the, before the, um, for the inauguration. But what's interesting to me now is that even with majority support for this agenda, the often rooted in racism, structural inequalities built into our system of democracy, the Senate, the Electoral College, the filibuster, gerrymandering, right? all of these things, voter suppression, that is stopping a multiracial majority from truly governing. And that, I think, is the next front. Well, I want to invite you if you have any, any last comments to make. Yeah. yeah, the beginning of what I hope is a, is a long and beautiful tenure at School of Labor and Urban Studies. Yeah, any, anything else you'd like to say? Well, thank you, Deepak. You know, your, your, your thought leadership, your strategy, your friendship has just been such an important part of, of my education. 
And I'm really excited to, to be your colleague. Thank you to the School of Labor and Urban Studies for bringing me on. And to the folks who are in this conversation, this is the naughty stuff, right? This is, this is the difficult stuff. It's the, it's, it is the not we have to, to un, unwind. And thank you for, thank you for being in, in this fight. Uh, it's so, so important. So I want to close the session by urging folks who haven't to, to read Heather's book and the new afterword, which is also great. And to say that I really think it speaks to what's needed now and what I think is, is at the heart of the DNA of SLU, which is to do this deep thinking about what ails us as a society and identify ways to move forward, but do it in a way that's tied to action and to strategy. And what I love about the framework that Heather has developed here and shared with us is it's very deeply grounded in history and theory but it's also extremely practical. And so I love that there's going to be a podcast that's going to take it to the next level and feature some of that solidarity dividend work in practice. So please join me in thanking the wonderful Heather McGee for joining us and, uh, and come check us out at School of Labor and Urban Studies. Thanks, everybody. Thank you. Issues like those raised in today's podcast are taken up in classroom discussions at the School of Labor and Urban Studies, where our preeminent faculty and engaged and diverse student body grapple with the most pressing challenges confronting organized labor and working class communities. For more information about the school, visit slu.cuny.edu. To learn more about the podcast and listen to other episodes, visit slu.cuny.edu slash podcast. And to subscribe to New Labor Forum or sign up for our free monthly newsletter, visit newlaborforum.cuny.edu.